This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. This episode is brought to you in part by Palm Beach Atlantic University's fully online Certificate in Cultural Apologetics program. Learn how to show the reasonableness and desirability of the gospel from leading Christian philosophers. For more information, go to pbaapologetics.com. This episode is part of a long series exploring the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States up through the Scopes Monkey Trial. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 5. And this episode may not be appropriate for the little ones. It won't be graphic, but we will be discussing the ethics of human breeding and stuff you'll learn in health class. Hint, hint. Okay, here's the show. Well, the Dukes and the Calcax are the, the kind of phrase that if you ask somebody in 1920 what they knew about them, uh, it would be very likely that they would have heard about them. This is Paul Lombardo. He teaches at Georgia State University and is the author of two books. Three Generations is No Imbeciles, Eugenics the Supreme Court and Buck versus Bell, and uh, another book on the same topic, A Century of Eugenics in America. The Jukes and the Calicacs are part of our national story here in the U.S., one that was repeated not just by word of mouth, but in study after study, kind of like the Octomom a few years ago or the welfare queen of the Reagan administration, stand-ins for a certain kind of poor person. A man named Dugdale went into the prisons in New York State and was counting heads, trying to find out where people came from and what their crimes were. And what he discovered was that there were a whole number of people in this family that he was finding who had the same name or were otherwise related by marriage or, or affinity. And he said, oh, these people seem to have descended from the same forebearers. So going backwards, he found somebody which he named Margaret, the mother of criminals. And he traced her lineage through public systems, doing a family tree of sorts. Uncle so-and-so is in a mental hospital, kids in prison, relatives in jails and mental hospitals, tracking how many of them were somehow deficient, then typing all of that up into a study. And so that early, early family study that focuses on people and institutions really turns out to be cited by everybody, uh, even though the, the comments of the author were that the reason he was writing about this was to improve conditions and to get more help for people like this woman, Ada Jukes or Margaret, the mother of criminals, who if, if she had been taken care of while she was pregnant, he said she wouldn't have ended up on the side of the road having this baby, and maybe all this expense and all this pain could have been avoided. The study was done to prove how much more money and effort was needed in the system to understand how this tragedy could happen, why so many members of one family were locked up in some public hold, kept away from society, is there something we here in the U.S. could have done by way of prevention? And certainly at that point, the author is focusing primarily on environmental solutions and says as much very clearly, but his study is used later to prove the opposite point. As so often happens, we humans are not great at keeping things in context. 
We love to manipulate data to fit our agendas. Some said that if so many people in the same family were living off the system, it was proof that the deficiency wasn't in the system, it was passed through blood. This uses a bit of a logical leap. In simple terms, it takes the old nature-verse-nurture debate and tosses out nurture. They went all in on nature. And this phenomenon went beyond the jukes. So you've got Ada Jukes on one hand from the 19th century. You've got uh, the Calacacs and Deborah Calacac on the other hand, who is a, a girl who lives in a home for the feeble-minded in New Jersey and whose family background is traced to to Martin Kalkak, the Revolutionary War soldier, who has two families, one a healthy one, one a family that's just full of, of uh, the so-called cacogenic people who have children who fail in the contest of life. The Kalkak ordeal was really the story of two families, two branches of the same family tree, one branch that fit our ideas of a successful family, and one that fell short. The first within the bonds of marriage, the other out of wedlock. One popular interpretation of the Kalakak study was that marital status at the time of conception changed the quality of the children. If you were in school in the early 20th century, you would have heard of these stories, and they might have been used as a kind of morality tales to show you how much living in the straight and narrow would, would get you a good heritage and how the biblical comments out of the book of Deuteronomy or the book of Leviticus about how sins of the father descend to the, unto the son, unto the third generation. You might have heard that in a sermon. It was common to hear it then. It's common to hear it now, actually. And it's still common to hear about the Jukes and the Calacacs as being st uh, studies that prove the point and how one can somehow be cursed into the third generation by the behavior of one's forebears. By the way, there are those who say that this generational curse in the Bible doesn't apply to today. But it would take too long to get into that. There's also a third study that is used, used as a kind of counterpoint. You've got the Jukes on one hand, which is this family that produces everybody who ends up in prison. But then you've got the Edwards family, the family of Jonathan Edwards, the famous uh, uh, minister. And all of his family is thought of as, as people who were upright and ended up productive members of society. Except maybe Aaron Burr, but yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. There's been a lot written on both of those and how imperfect, and that'd be a kind way of saying it, both of those studies are and how they ignore many people in the background who, who were probably not the ones you'd want to focus on if you were trying to say that good heritage always gets you good results. The Jukes and the Calacacs became useful bits of propaganda. Their story might urge society to pay attention to the legacy of poverty. But in the wrong hands, well, it tipped off one of the darkest chapters in American history. One that would shape the creation of Christian fundamentalism and spark the eugenics debate that is still going on today. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truths. The idea that societies can be ordered goes back pretty far. 
increasing the number of those who are deemed fit and decreasing those who are not. You know, Plato wrote about it. Thomas More wrote about it. What happened in the late 1800s is that people started taking those ideas and developing what would later become the pseudoscience of eugenics. The United States was an agricultural country in the 19th century. Part of working on farms involves selective breeding, taking the strongest cows, pigs, sheep, whatever, and mating them to hopefully produce healthier offspring. If this stuff works on the farm, why not breed bigger, faster, stronger humans? As I've been saying for the last year, this was an era of big ideas. Unions, women's suffrage, prohibition, currency reform. The country pre-World War I was filled with optimism. Together, we could solve all manner of problems through legislation and proper programs. There was a side of the eugenics movement that genuinely wanted to help people, and we'll cover that a little later. But first, we should talk about the dark side. They use the law in some pretty nefarious ways. To keep people from getting married, for example, because they had what were thought to be transmissible, quote, defects disabilities perhaps, like epilepsy, or uh, cognitive limitations, which, which then were described as feeble-mindedness. By the way, we will necessarily be using some outdated terms in this episode. Other people were prevented by law from getting married because they were of different races. And that was a very strong part of the eugenics movement, was a, a focus and discrimination on people based on their race or their ethnicity. And the restriction of immigration based on race. And we have a national law to that effect from 1924 till 1965, a quota system for keeping people out who were thought to be defective like Italians and Jews. He's referring to the Johnson-Reed Act. It limited the number of people immigrating to the United States depending on their country of origin, excluding all immigrants from Asia in an effort to keep the United States somewhat homogenous. The dark side of eugenics also included forced sterilization, taking people deemed unfit, like criminals or those with cognitive limitations, and making it so they can't have children, can't pass those genes on to the next generation. Sterilization laws were passed in more than 30 states. Some 60,000 people sterilized over the course of almost a whole century, but the last one not repealed until uh, 2008. That's not that long ago. Imagine having someone determine for you whether or not you were fit to have children just because of how much money you earn or a special need. Eugenics is about two things. It's about sex and it's about money. It's about sex because the focal point in eugenics is really about reproduction and who shall be allowed to reproduce and when should we be concerned about people who are on the way to reproducing, meaning who are sexually active. And so if you look at all the laws that are passed that have to do with eugenics, they tend to focus on people who have children with disabilities, whose, whose children uh, who are the result of illegitimate matings, who are children who have diseases because of sexually transmitted diseases. The earliest sterilization laws focus very clearly on people in same-sex relationships or people who are uh, considered deviant because of their sexual practices. We were exiting the prim and proper Victorian era. 
the 1920s saw an explosion of looser morals around dress and sex. Even if you're not one for biblical laws about reproduction or cultural mores that sometimes fill in the gaps where the Bible is silent, there were real public health concerns here. At the turn of the 1900s, there was precious little we could do about STDs like syphilis. Penicillin was not discovered until 1928, and not ready for medical use until the 1940s. Birth control pills were not a thing. Women didn't have as many opportunities as they do now. A single mom was bound to struggle even more than they do today. Progressive thinkers tried to figure out how do we help people? How do you control a disease like syphilis, which has devastating impacts, especially on children? According to the CDC, 40% of children born to women with syphilis are stillborn or die of infection shortly after birth. Babies born with congenital syphilis, quote, can have bone damage, severe anemia, enlarged liver and spleen, jaundice, nerve problems causing blindness or deafness, meningitis, or skin rashes. It was a public health crisis. Now, if you were alive back then, what would you do? Seriously, there were no good treatments. How do you protect babies without modern medications? I mean, abstinence programs are one real option. But you can't control everybody. Some thought that the best way to address these problems was to sterilize those who were, quote-unquote, oversexed. And the second thing, money, also ends up baked into the law. The concern that is voiced for why we shouldn't let such people have children is because they end up raising our taxes. So the idea is that if we did away with the people who filled those places by not allowing them to have children, there wouldn't be any of those other, other people around because all of those conditions are somehow controlled by heredity. As with so much from this era, it was important to study the matter in at least a pseudoscience way. One of the leading American organizations for eugenics was the Eugenics Records Office, or ERO. Eugenicists thought it would be good to found an organization to warehouse family records and to promote their beliefs. The history of the ERO began in 1905 when Charles Davenport began giving lectures on the benefits of sterilization. He's a Harvard graduate. He teaches there. He teaches at the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago. Funded by the Rockefellers, it was the American home of modernist theology. Davenport starts giving lectures as early as 1905, talking about the need to eliminate the feeble-minded and the degenerate. Davenport is able to attract money. He's a great fundraiser. He's able to attract uh, philanthropic money to the eugenics record office. He says all other kinds of philanthropy, like just general charity, ought to be discouraged. Uh, using money to take care of people just encourages them to breed. The better thing would be to lock them up so that they can't have children, segregate them, he says, or sterilize them so that they're physically unable to have children but can still go out and work and wouldn't have to be paid for with tax money. And the Eugenics Record Office, a nonprofit, became the clearinghouse for information. It's meant to be a place where records of families can be stored. It is the Eugenics Record Office, 
but it's also a place that does studies in heredity. To the point of even studying the genetic fitness of a couple before they got married and offering suggestions. The ERO had a lot of projects, but there is one in particular that I think is worth diving into. It was headed up by a guy named Harry Laughlin. He was a believer in sterilization. At one conference, he proposed that to accomplish their goal, they would have to sterilize 15 million people over 65 years. Laughlin put together a committee to study where eugenics laws worked and where they failed. There were already states doing forced sterilizations. Laughlin and the committee wanted those laws to be bulletproof in order to protect doctors and institutions from being sued. And eventually, even though he was turned down by a bunch of publishers, he eventually gets funding from a judge in Chicago and who gives Laughlin enough money to publish several thousand copies of this book and distribute them for free to people all around the country. The book included a model law, a document that could be adjusted to create a law in your own state if you so wished. This was a sterilization policy in a box. All it needed was someone to enact it in each state. Bringing us around to Virginia. Virginia plays a big role in this story, even though they didn't do the most surgeries. That title belongs to California. By 1922, 80% of sterilizations were done in California alone. Virginia is important for its national impact. A version of Laughlin's law went into effect in 1924, just one year before the Scopes Monkey Trial. One of the law's biggest supporters was the Virginia Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, with its superintendent, Albert Pretty. When the law was passed, Pretty said, great, we've got the law now, let's start sterilizing people. And his lawyer, who was very prudent, said, no, no doctor, we can't start yet. We have to make sure that the courts will uphold this law and its constitutionality. So we have to find a way of testing it. We have to get somebody to sterilize who will be our test case. And we have to run this through the courts to make sure that the courts believe this is constitutional. Because if they overturn it and this patient sues you, then you could lose again. And this time you may have to pay. You'll notice when we talk about the Scopes trial in a few episodes that that too was also a test case. And why is it that Carrie Buck seemed like the perfect person to use to test this? Well, according to Harry Laughlin, he'd been looking for a long time at cases, and they'd never found one where they had three generations of defect appearing sequentially in the same family. Three generations. Carrie Buck, her daughter, and Carrie's mother. Carrie Buck was 17 years old and pregnant out of wedlock. She grew up in foster care and had only five years of formal education. Some said she was more of a servant to her foster parents than a daughter. Her foster parents testified that she was subject to epilepsy, headaches, nervousness, fits, and convulsions. But they also said that she had no fits or spasms of any kind. Their story was inconsistent. But that didn't matter. As a single pregnant woman, she was viewed as morally deviant. Nobody bothered to mention that she'd been raped by the nephew of her foster parents. Carrie's mother suffered from pneumonia, rheumatism, and syphilis, 
and showed marks from needles, suggesting she'd injected drugs. She'd previously been arrested for prostitution and had given birth to illegitimate children, and she was declared mentally deficient, familial, moron. Then there was Carrie's infant daughter, Vivian. There were reports that there was something wrong with it too, something not quite right, something peculiar. And so Laughlin said, bingo, we've never had this before. We've never been able to find one family with three generations of defect. This proves that people inherit these problems. The baby was so young that it was hard to know much about its cognitive ability. That didn't seem to matter. The only testimony that said anything about what the baby could do was given by a Red Cross nurse who contradicted herself. At one point, she said, I I don't really know that there's anything wrong with this baby. And then later, when she was called to testify, she said, I'm uh, I'm not sure, but I looked at the baby at the the same time that I looked at another child of the same age. And there was something uh, strange about her. I can't put my finger on it, but there was something not quite right. She didn't seem normal. Carrie was appointed a lawyer named Irving Whitehead, a man whose conflicts of interest and lack of tenacity on behalf of his client would be comical in a movie, but in real life were quite tragic. He was a boyhood friend of Aubrey Strode, the lawyer arguing on behalf of the Virginia Colony. He was also had been a member of the board of directors, one of the founding directors of the Virginia Colony for the Epileptic and the Feeble-Minded. He'd been an advisor to Dr. Pretty. He had voted in favor of sterilization even before the law was in place. And he had written privately to Dr. Pretty saying he was right to sterilize people. There was even a building on the campus of the Virginia Colony named in honor of Irving Whitehead at the time of the case. You can hardly imagine an instance where a lawyer would be more prejudiced against his own client. During the five-hour trial, Whitehead offered no evidence to defend Carey and called no witnesses. The law was tried by the Supreme Court in 1927, just two years after the Scopes trial. Once the case was over, doctors felt more confident in performing these surgeries, not just on those institutionalized, but also on women who were thought to be loose. They might be told they were going in to get their appendix out, only to realize years later, after trying to have children, that they had been sterilized. Some 60,000 people were involuntarily sterilized in the United States. Mostly women, the poor, those with disabilities, and people of color. What's worse, the Germans were paying attention. Harry Laughlin, the man who wrote the test law, consulted with Germany and other governments. They had laws in place before Buck v. Bell, but the influence is obvious. And they borrow some from a law passed in California, from the law passed in Indiana, and also from the law passed in Virginia that was challenged in the Buck case. So by the time that the Nazis passed their law in 1933, it actually goes into effect in January of 1934, the Germans are write a much more expansive law that covers more people, and they use it much more aggressively. They sterilize 400,000 people in about five years. Buck v. Bell has never been overturned in the United States. But Paul was clear that since forced sterilization of this kind is not legal in any states, it doesn't make any sense to revisit it. 
There are, after all, all kinds of outdated laws on the books, and it would be difficult to rectify them all. Carrie Buck was sterilized, as was her sister. That is where the story ends in a lot of reporting on eugenics. Focus on the numbers, the tragedies, questions of the government to dictate how many children and what kind of children we should have. When we return, we'll go a little deeper to understand the roles that Christians played and the tangled knot we get into when we talk about eugenics. Stay tuned. From Christianity Today, this is Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media and one of the hosts of The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. Each week on The Bulletin, we bring in a variety of guests for conversations about the most important questions Christians are asking. Our hope is to encourage the church to live with a faithful presence in a fallen world and to cut through the polarizing noise that's dividing not just the church, but the communities around us. New episodes of The Bulletin come out every Friday, so subscribe today, wherever you get your podcasts. Now that we've discussed how eugenics became legal in the United States, let's take a step backwards. When this topic is usually discussed in podcasts, it's usually because podcast listeners love to be shocked to clutch our pearls. That was the first act. Let's go a step further and see not only how social movements led us to eugenics, but also how complicated this issue really is. It is vital if we're going to understand the battle fundamentalists waged against evolution in schools. First up, Darwinism. Though some of us like to blame him for it, Charles Darwin didn't invent eugenics. The term eugenics was coined by a man named Francis Galton in the late 1800s. He exhorted the better classes to breed more and suggested that governments should be involved in setting limits on fertility. He also wrote but never published a utopian novel picturing a world in which governments controlled breeding where the gifted won diplomas, while the degenerates worked in hard labor. So Darwin didn't invent eugenics, but the term was coined by Galton, Darwin's half-cousin. And it's difficult to slice exactly where Darwin stood on eugenics. He seems to understand the utility of it, but also recognizes that our own human sympathy is the noblest part of our character. After his well-known book on the origin of species that we covered earlier this season, he published The Descent of Man. With savages, the weak in body or mind are soon eliminated, and those that survive commonly exhibit a vigorous state of health. We civilized men, on the other hand, do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, and the sick, we institute poor laws and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of everyone to the last moment. There is reason to believe that vaccination has preserved thousands who from a weak constitution would formerly have succumbed to smallpox. Thus, the weak members of civilized society propagate their kind. 
No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of man. It is surprising how soon a want of care or care wrongly directed leads to the degeneration of a domestic race. But, excepting in the case of man himself, hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed. In other words, Darwin stated his perceived utility in culling the human herd. While he was not the advocate for sterilization that Galton was, it's clear that he aligned himself with at least some eugenic ideas. I wanted to cover eugenics this season because it feels kind of fringy today. But this was mainstream stuff during the 1920s, the era of the modernist fundamentalist debate and the Scopes Monkey Trial. The decision to block teaching evolution in public schools goes much deeper than, say, a literal interpretation of the Bible. There was definitely some of that, but the battle also arose from a genuine concern over what it would mean to society to change our founding myth. If we weren't created by God out of dust, but are descendants of apes, what does that say about our intrinsic value? That is the problem that William Jennings Bryan had with evolution. Here again is historian Michael Kazin. He's the author of A Godly Hero, a biography of William Jennings Bryan. He becomes you know, a defender of the fundamentalist faith, uh, so to speak, really around World War I, when he began to believe that one of the reasons why the world had descended, descended into this really awful war called the Great War, the greatest war in history up to that point, 20 million people dying in it, was because people have moved away from God. People have moved away from the Bible. And then Darwinism is, is becoming more and more popular in colleges and in uh, and, and teaching of science more generally in the early 20th century. And, and so he sees Darwinism as a direct threat to uh, young people imbibing the Christian religion and faith of their, of their parents. And for him, he defines Darwinism really more social Darwinism. He doesn't spend much time studying the science, but he does study the way the science of Darwinism was applied by some Darwinists, by some evolutionists, to, to justify eugenics, to justify the idea of the survival of the fittest and self-preservation as the first law of nature. And he publishes a book of, of lectures he gave, uh, sermons really, called Brother versus Brute in the early 1920s, where Darwinism is the brutish philosophy and brotherhood is the Christian philosophy. So for him, again, how you apply your religion or your, or your secular beliefs is what really mattered for him. He, his politics didn't really change. He saw Darwinism as the enemy of a more humane politics, a, a politics of brotherhood and sisterhood, even though he sets himself against liberal theologians who accept you know, many of the tenets of Darwinism. He sets himself against people on the left politically by the 1920s. He does it in the interests of his original ideals and his original beliefs, which don't change. Brian was against the cruelty he thought would come from believing that we are nothing more than animals, which, again, may sound extreme to some listeners. But remember that humans are often driven by seemingly small changes in belief. Take the survival of the fittest. Yet another concept that, surprisingly, Darwin did not invent. That claim goes to British scientist Herbert Spencer, though Darwin used the term in his writing. Darwin used it to refer to biology, that creatures evolved and those who survived were superior. 
Spencer inspired the social Darwinism movement that William Jennings Bryan so vehemently opposed. Spencer applied survival of the fittest to whole societies. His ideas went on to influence conquests and colonization from guys like Teddy Roosevelt, though Spencer was, in fact, a pacifist. So, it may sound simple when I say that Brian was concerned about the outcome of teaching evolution in schools. He and many others were concerned about what it would mean to take humanity off of the pedestal of being made in God's image and reduce us to mere animals. Brian was not the only one. Billy Sunday preached about the connection in his 1925 Memphis Crusade. Even some pro-eugenicists like A.E. Wiggum expressed the link and believed that they couldn't convince people of the value of eugenics until they taught people about evolution. Before the commercial, I covered the part we often discuss in secular circles, the horrors of mass sterilization. Now we're discussing what you hear in Christian circles. Brian was against evolution being taught in schools because this was an age of eugenics. At least, that's what we're told. We need to go one step further. I was at my local library, outlining Paul's book for this episode, when I came across a peculiar sentence. Society women who have entered the fight against vice pushed for the establishment of the National Society for the Promotion of Practical Eugenics. Their leaders include women like Mrs. Woodrow Wilson and Mrs. William Jennings Bryan. As you can imagine, that stopped me cold. Here I'd been working on this series based on the assumption that the Bryans were anti-eugenics. But it turns out that Mary Bryan was a leader in a eugenics organization called the National Society for the Promotion of Practical Eugenics. Which means something in the way we talk about the Bryans and eugenics is amiss. Because there's also some evidence of Bryan himself praising well-known eugenicists. I think that it's hard for us in a modern era to place him either politically or ideologically in some cases because he seems to be embodying um, things that we don't see put together these days in the same way. I wrote about Brian and eugenics because I think the general notion was that because of his role in the Scopes trial, he was against eugenics. And I think that that's an accurate portrayal of his antipathy towards certain parts of evolutionary theory. He was very much against the kind of dog-eat-dog ideas of evolution he thought it was a terrible idea to let the government practice what is now called social Darwinism, which is to say, don't help people out, just let them die if they're struggling, just let people sink or swim. And Brian didn't like that idea. He thought that was unchristian. And yet, there is evidence that he sometimes said glowing things about eugenicists. He writes a, a column regularly, well into his later years, and it's all about Bible truth. And at the time that the Prohibition Amendment is passed, he says, we need to thank the ladies of the WCTU. That's the Women's Christian Temperance Union. For teaching us about eugenics. He thanked an organization for teaching eugenics. Not just any organization either. 
the WCTU was a premier women's movement, now most famous for its role in prohibition. You can find two episodes I did about it in season two. They advocated for and for, were successful in getting mandatory textbooks in, included in many, many state schools. They were involved in so much of that era. Public health, the treatment of women, prohibition, education, far beyond just telling people not to drink. And in those textbooks, they would say, you need to pay attention to eugenics. And eugenics, as I've already described it, as a field which is doesn't approve of alcohol because of the negative effects of alcohol on families and on children and on newborn babies particularly. So Brian is in favor of eugenics if it means, you know, make healthier babies. But he's not in favor of it if it means uh, this is a dog-eat-dog world where we shouldn't help our neighbors. That may seem like a contradiction. Or like maybe he was playing both sides of an argument in order to curry favor. Yeah, I've had a really hard time trying to split those hairs and figure out where he exactly stood. Because that last speech he never delivered after the uh, Scopes trial seems to make it clear that he's against any kind of cruelty, as you said. Uh, but, yeah. but then he goes on mm-hmm. and praises the works of eugenicists. Uh, so how do you split that hair? Yeah. I, I don't think that, you know, I, I think that's the right question to ask. I think it's the right question to ask for anybody because I, you know, I can give you a list of, of hundreds of people who said, hundreds of very famous people who said strong things about eugenics. And I, I'll give you an example, uh, Clarence Darrow, you know, Clarence Darrow, who of course is Brian's opposite in this, in the Scopes trial, mocks Brian's position on evolution and for that matter, on religion. We'll cover Darrow in depth in the next episode. This season is headed towards a discussion of the Scopes Monkey Trial, a case in Tennessee that tried to suss out whether or not it was legal for states to block the teaching of evolution. Brian was on the prosecution, Darrow on the defense. Darrow was a bad boy lawyer, often fighting on behalf of unpopular causes. He was also a famous atheist. And, and writes an article which is published in the 1920s about his contempt for eugenics, his contempt for eugenic sterilization particularly. The kind of operation performed against Carrie Buck. But in 1915, there's a famous case, the Bollinger baby, where the doctor in Chicago decides to not treat a, a baby who's born with, with serious illness and disability. And the, and the uh, a group called the Medical Review of Reviews out of New York goes around and finds some famous people and asks them what they think about this. What do they think about the non-treatment of disabled infants as part of eugenics? And Darrow says it's fine. Um, interestingly enough, so does Helen Keller. Helen Keller, of course, a famous writer and activist, herself both blind and deaf as a young child. Many well-known people supported some form of eugenics, as I mentioned earlier, including American presidents Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Warren Harding, Calvin Coolidge, William Howard Taft, and Herbert Hoover. At least Darrow says, no, I'm not for it. I don't think they know what they're talking about. I don't think that, I don't think that doctors can make those kinds of decisions about people's future. So is he for eugenics or against it? Well, it depends on what you're asking about. It depends on what policy you're talking about. Should we encourage healthy people to get married? Or a lot of people would have said, sure, we should. Should we encourage people who can't take care of children to not have more children? Many people then and now would agree with that statement. 
But does that mean you should be called a eugenist? Well, if you're being honest about it, you have to make you do have to split the hair. You have to say, what does it mean when they say eugenics in that particular situation? What policy are they endorsing? Which, as you know, requires actual work. It's much easier to label someone a eugenicist and walk away. But in the early 1900s, eugenics meant a lot of different things, from the simple study of how to raise healthy children to forced sterilization. It was a much broader term back then. I, I keep wanting to explain to people, no, 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 it didn't mean that. Not to everybody. <laughs> Whatever that was. So what, how do we get it wrong then? I think we, we get it wrong because we assume that an idea that's first pronounced in 1883 and that we're still using meant the same thing for every person who ever used it over 120 years. That's the first part. The second thing is we don't tie it to specific policies or specific behaviors. We just say it's a bad word. You know, you're a eugenicist. Well, that's enough. That closes down the conversation. I, I think we don't remember that that most people associated eugenics, especially in the early years, not with the kinds of things that we associate it with, which is, which is you know, sterilization and euthanasia and Hitler, but they associated it with this, this kind of smiling face. I have a whole uh, presentation, which one of these days I'll, I'll have to send out to get published, about how eugenics was used as an advertising medium. I have, I have thousands of ads in which the word eugenics appears, and it, it's used to sell products. The people on Madison Avenue, as early as 1910, knew that if you use the word eugenics, you could sell things because people associated it with, with positive outcomes. It was healthy. It was about preventing bad things. It was about having healthy babies. So there's eugenic baby carriages. There's eugenic foods. There's eugenic cosmetics. There's even eugenic motor cars. <laughs> so in the early years of the century, if you said the word eugenics, the first thing that came into people's mind was not Hitler. It was smiling babies. So when we try to suss out whether William Jennings Bryan was actually against it or for it, things get complicated because our definition is much smaller than theirs was. Some form of eugenics was adopted by nearly every denomination of Protestantism, as well as with Jews and Catholics. It was most prominent among liberal members. That may seem odd. I spent a lot of time this season telling you that after the Great Reversal, it was liberal Christians who embraced doing good works and helping people. Surprisingly, it's that same progressive impulse that brought Americans around to eugenics. That's not to condemn the progressive movement, though you can certainly find podcasts that do. But in the early 1900s, there were competitions encouraging ministers to write sermons advocating for the use of eugenics and sterilization. As for Mary Bryan, William Jennings Bryan's wife, it has been difficult to nail down her beliefs as well. The Washington Post article that Paul referenced to demonstrate her role in a eugenics society starts out fairly innocently, naming a group of prominent women who listened to one of the strangest talks ever given them, dealing frankly and without reserve upon the vital question of sex hygiene, its relation to marriage, and the effects of different diseases upon the human race. The plan the women came up with was to offer the working females of Washington, D.C. access to a special clinic open 
after normal work hours. Remember, the country at the time was struggling with syphilis and how to treat it as sexual mores relaxed. The women at the meeting urged a return to the old puritanical ideals. So far, we probably wouldn't call this eugenics, right? It's just a frank talk about stopping the spread of STDs. The article ratchets up the tension by discussing what to do with people who have epilepsy. That many of the cases of girls who went wrong were due to feeble-mindedness contracted from the parent. And you can see how this vision of eugenics was tied to alcohol, and why it was a concern for groups like the Women's Christian Temperance Union. If alcohol caused a rise in sexual activity, perhaps doing away with alcohol was the appropriate response. The article also states that the group advocated for segregating out certain types of people and also sterilization laws. We don't know how much of this Mary Bryant was behind, or how much translated to her husband, but it seems that there was some advocacy for eugenic sterilization in their household. How far that went, neither Paul Lombardo nor the team at Nebraska History nor myself could really nail down. Brian did praise the WCT's efforts at teaching eugenics, albeit in order to champion prohibition. He did the same while praising the works of a well-known eugenicist named Caleb Saleby. Eugenics furnishes us with a strong inducement to restrain against immorality. Which sounds like he's all for eugenics. But he also said, Scientific breeding, as if man were an animal, is a false doctrine. Later, at the end of his life, in his final undelivered speech, he seems completely against eugenics. If that means he changed his mind or only supported some of it, disagreed with his wife, backed it only when politically expedient, I'm just not sure. What we do know is that evolution and eugenics were linked in the minds of many, that this movement to sterilize people against their will happened here and went on to inspire the Nazis in their own efforts to forcibly control whole populations of people. And that this movement continues today. There are documented cases of it happening in the US as recently as the 2000s, with women in California sterilized in prisons. As we continue this season, I want us to really understand this time period. Fundamentalism arose in the 19-teens and 20s in an era that some of us look back on as quaint, but that's not even close to accurate. So. When we get to the Scopes trial in just a few episodes, I want us to keep all of this stuff in mind. The fear of teaching evolution in school was tied to real concern about how far the government should or could go. Frankly, I'm hearing more and more discussion of eugenics in the media. Not to mention mudslinging by both the left and the right, accusing each other of eugenics through abortion limiting who can marry, and fear of immigrants. What we tend to miss goes way back to the beginning of the episode, this question of nature versus nurture. We spend so much time talking about nature, genetics, that we forget the poor and downcast right in front of us. We move those with special needs out of the public eye, shy away from the mentally ill, and people with real needs. 
before you shake your fist at people who did forcible sterilizations, ask yourself, where are the hurting people around you? You may not lock them up, but have you been shutting them out? Do you maintain hope for them, or do you write them off as octomoms, welfare queens, the jukes, or the calicacs? Special thanks to Paul Lombardo. He's a professor of law at Georgia State University and the author of two books, Three Generations No Imbeciles from Johns Hopkins Press and A Century of Eugenics in America, From the Indiana Experiment to the Human Genome Era. I also used Preaching Eugenics by Christine Rosen from Oxford University Press. For a list of sources, please check your show notes or visit trucepodcast.com. The staff at History Nebraska was kind enough to dig through archives to uncover a number of newspaper articles, including the one from the Washington Post that I quoted here. Thanks to Matt Pearsall and everyone there who contributed. I also played a clip from my interview with Michael Kazin, author of A Godly Hero, and his new book is called What It Took to Win. It's a history of the Democratic Party. Special thanks to Jerry Dugan of the Beyond the Rut podcast for his vocal work. I've got much more with Paul Lombardo as a bonus for patrons who donate via Patreon.com. We talk about how we in the media sometimes fail to represent eugenics correctly, how he came to study it, and what it was like to meet the real Carrie Buck. Your financial help really is a blessing to me. I would love to do this show full time. Right now, I'm pretty much exhausted from the five years of starting driving school bus at 6.30 in the morning and working on this show until afternoon route. It often means 11-hour days and long weekend trips to make ends meet. This show isn't done by some big conglomerate. It's literally just me. But together, we can send the message that fun, challenging, and intelligent media is possible in the Christian market. You can give via Patreon and get bonus episodes, but I can also take PayPal, check, or you can Venmo me at at Podcast. Special thanks to my brother Nick Stern, who did some vocal work today and is a great sounding board. Also, I would love it if you would tell your friends and family about this show. It would also be great if you'd leave positive comments on social media and in your podcasting app. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. God willing, we'll talk again in two weeks. I'm Chris Starin. And this is Truce.